Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm your host, Ariona Spitkanen, a doctoral candidate at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. In this episode, we'll be talking about China's rural and urban transformation from an ethnographic perspective. My guest today is Suvi Rautio, an anthropologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Suvi's academic interests are related to the social orderings of marginalized populations living in China, and she is currently working on a research project on the transmission of memory and loss among Beijing's intellectual class during the Maoist era. Suvi has also hosted her own podcast series on Chinese studies here in the New Books Network, and our listeners are encouraged to check out Suvi's profile on the website, where you can see a list of the episodes that she has hosted. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Suvi. Thank you so much for having me, Arianos. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. It's great to have you. So as I just mentioned there in the introduction, you're currently working on this research project on memory and loss among Beijing's intellectual class in the Maoist era, which sounds like a really interesting topic. So to start with, could you tell us a bit more about this topic? Just introduce your topic and what sort of questions you're focusing on in this research. Yeah, absolutely. So the project starts, as you just mentioned, it's about Beijing intellectuals during the Maoist era. I'm looking at one particular university ground, not intellectuals on a kind of wider society level. And the project itself starts, it begins from my own family history. So I'm going to describe briefly what this means. I'm going to describe briefly my own family dynamics and how At the birth of Mao's China, my family was anchored to a city that none of them were from. What I mean that none of them were from Beijing, my grandfather himself is from from Fujian, from Fuzhou, and he was from a merchant family, and he was able to attend university and study as a psychologist. And he was one of the first, or there's a wave, at the time there was a wave of intellectuals, of students going to France with stipends and to study there from from Tsinghua, from Beidam and so forth. And my grandfather was one of them who was able to ride this wave to Europe and study abroad. Quite a privileged position to be in at the time because the stipend allowed them to live relatively well off in Paris. And my mo- my grandmother was in Finland and she was visiting a friend in Paris and that's how she met her soon-to-be husband. And considering the limited options for my grandfather at the time, and he was growing increasingly politically aligned with what Mao Zedong had already grounded in China. So he wanted to return to China and he wanted to be part of this project. His own family had already migrated from Fujian to Taiwan at the time was a common migration pattern for those who were not politically aligned. So as I mentioned, this project starts from my own family history who were moving to a city that none of them were from. So my grandfather was driven there for political reasons, but of course also for work, and he brought his whole family there with him. At the time, China was in a very different position in terms of treating foreigners and intellectuals especially. And my understanding is the first few years, my family lived relatively comfortably. They were respected in society and there was an excitement, a general kind of energy in the air that they were kind of feeding off at the time. 
So the purpose of this study is to one day expand from this family history. So I do hope to go to, to Beijing and get to collect the stories from the community of other families who were from intellectual backgrounds and who were teaching on university grounds and to understand the stories of the intellectuals' children's lives at the time who were in close contact and continue to be in close contact with my father and uncle to this day. But anyway, at the moment, considering I'm drawing on the stories from my own family history, I think it's opened up all kinds of interesting preliminary findings. On one level, it's adding to I think there's very little information about the stories and experiences of foreigners in China during the Maoist era. And there's not much recognition of the plurality and multiplicity of these stories. Each of the families who were moving to China at the time had their own objectives and motivations for living in China, oftentimes politically aligned, but their political affiliation and their ideology had its own background, had its own history and narrative and drive. And I think there's a common assumption that, that these foreigners were living in conditions of privilege or in a vacuum separate from the reality of Chinese people at the time. But the stories that I'm collecting at the moment with my father and my uncle complicate these assumptions. The stories that, that they're sharing with me are much more about losing place in the world. They're about youth, they're about vulnerability, and at the same time, finding a sense of belonging in a community with their friends in a neighborhood who were themselves also outcasts in their own ways. But perhaps what I find most interesting from the preliminary interviews that I've been doing with my uncle and father here in Helsinki is that even though, you know, their age limit is relatively close, the political discrimination that they felt is so vastly different. And it really points to just how different family members can experience political discrimination. It's in no way a singular kind of force. And even though the entire family was a target of state violence for its impurity, but the stories I'm collecting from my uncle and father, again, are very different. So even though they were both considered politically impure, my father was also racially flawed and my uncle was himself physically disabled. So these also added another layer to their kind of target for state violence and, and target of discrimination. But on the story of targets of the state, my grandfather was sent to university prison and he was then soon after, two years after, sent down to the countryside under the down to the countryside movement. And throughout this time, my grandmother was under house arrest. So in the mid-1960s, my whole family kind of fell apart entirely. And my father also became a target in schools where teachers pointed out to students that they should have nothing to do with him as a kind of outcast, as a foreigner, even though himself his whole life, his whole world had been shaped in Beijing at the time. He was also labeled as a petty criminal, and he was placed into re-education camps or Shushiban. And later he was released. And even after he was released, he was frequently sought after and gathered with other petty criminals to be surveilled and punished. His stories all carry an underlying message of surveillance and watching over well constantly being watched basically constantly being under the eyes of political rule and and anyone he who he was involved with then became a target of political rule so it's, it's kind of he was kind of contagious to those around him Another kind of interesting find from these preliminary findings is just the way that people recall their narratives, how they recall their their histories, I find really fascinating. So my uncle draws a lot more on vocabulary to explain his discrimination. He uses terminology such as third-class citizen to kind of justify what was done to him. He recognizing that it was a systematic flaw rather than necessarily his individual flaw, whereas my father pieces together his histories much more based on facts, which I find he, he's trying to do in order to locate justice to what was done to people like him and his family at the time. Another difference between the two is, is one boasts much more and downplays the victimhood that they experienced, while the other one 
pays much more attention to giving the details correctly. So what I find really interesting about these recollections is that they're both attempts to cope with the past. They're both carry agency in order to find comfort in what they in their generation lost. It shows how historical narratives are produced and reproduced in everyday life to shape who we are and to make sense of where we stand in the world. And I don't think any of these, these this way of attempting to cope is, is unique to, to the stories I'm collecting. Sorry, sorry, the way that my father and uncle are recollecting their histories, it's not unique to them, but it speaks to the conditions of the time that arguably continue to work through in the sense of belonging and place that people associate with China to this day. So as I mentioned at the beginning, I don't intend to keep my project purely focused on my family histories. But at the moment, considering travel is restricted to China, it's kind of all I can work with. At the same time, beyond interviews and these narratives, which are much more personal, I'm also going through boxes of archives that my father brought back over the years. He collected a lot of the Red Guard pamphlets that were being distributed in university grounds that he himself was also distributing at the beginning when he also very much carried a sense of loyalty to the party. Going through these archives has also been really fascinating because I'm constantly reminded of the faith and the belief that Red Guards felt at the time. There were kind of the moral zealousness that was spreading across China, especially at the first years of Cultural Revolution, which of course also led to violence. These were integral to Red Guard troops and justified through their theory. This kind of belief in this zealousness really does come through in these pamphlets that we're going through together. One of the biggest findings that I will probably continue to encounter throughout my research is that, and this sh should in no way come as a surprise, but which will constantly have to be processed and worked on, is that building an anthropological intervention around history and biography is really not an easy task. It's really challenging personally and intellectually, and I'm really constantly have to, having to process what it means to and how I can better redefine my role, not as a daughter, but as a researcher in front of my family. And I think at the same time, my family members are struggling to redefine their role as interlocutors or as intimate others, as subjects of my research rather than as, as my family members. And this will also then expand if I do ever make it to collect the stories of my interlocutors in Beijing, where they're going to be associating my role through my affiliations with my family and shaping their stories around that. So this kind of draws back to the continuous questions that anthropologists ask about objectivity and, and subjectivity and seeking to remain professional and paying attention to the kinds of emotions that are that are being roused when we, when we listen to stories that oftentimes have many layers and many other ways of interpreting them. So this, this is something that I'll constantly have to work on as my, as my research unfolds. Okay, yeah. Well, sounds like a super interesting topic, and, and you obviously have a really special personal perspective and also access to these archives and, and personal resources that you have. So definitely really interesting. And, and I can't wait to hear more once your research progresses. And obviously, we hope that you'll be able to go to Beijing sooner rather than later. Obviously, the current situation is challenging regarding travel, but fingers crossed on that sounds super interesting. Your current research obviously focuses on Beijing, which is urban environment, but your previous research has focused on specifically rural village life 
in China. And you wrote your PhD dissertation based on this quite extensive ethnographic fieldwork in a village called Meili in southwest China. And based on this, in your PhD dissertation, you asked a sort of quite a big question, what constitutes and defines a village in China today? So what sort of place is the village of Meili and what sort of answers did you find to this question? of, you know, what constitutes and defines a village in China today based on your fieldwork in Meili? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. A big one, as you mentioned. Yeah. But yeah, just to give some background. So Meili is an acronym I give to the, to the village where I did my research in the landlocked province of Guizhou in southwest China. Meili is a Dong ethnic minority village with a population of 1,306 registered inhabitants. It's surrounded by mountains and terrace fields, and it's very compact and sits in a, in a deep valley. So within kind of 30 minutes or even 25 minutes, you've walked from one end to the village to the next in terms of where people are living. Of course, the mountains and the fields um, kind of adds a whole other spectrum to, to the village space. But it's, it's a very compact space where people are living kind of on top of one another in their wooden framed houses. To this day, the, the kind of vernacular architecture, these wooden frameworks are very well kept. And in addition to the wooden homes, there's numerous other landmarks that define it as a Dong ethnic minority village, such as rainwater bridges, Feng Yuqiao, Drum Tower, and for example, carved stone pathways and lots of other remnants from the Qing dynasty. And in recognition of this kind of holistic, well-kept vernacular architecture, Meili is listed under numerous heritage protocols. In 2014, along with 50 other villages across the nation, Meili was listed as a model traditional village. So Chuan It's also gained other nationally acclaimed merits as a heritage site, including UNESCO's World Heritage Convention Dong Village tentative list. So to this day, they still haven't gained recognition in the list, but it's on the tentative list with 22 other Dong villages in Guizhou and neighboring Guangxi and Hunan. So I lived in Meili for a total of 13 months between 2014 and 2017. So the longest stay was 11 months. And then I did visits before and after that official doctoral fieldwork. When I first started my fieldwork, I thought I would be studying the trees and the landscape of the village, which I found fascinating because during preliminary visits, I was soon to learn that the trees carry a kind of spiritual entity of healing children. And there was also the risk of outsiders coming in to loot some of these endangered trees. So I was interested in studying the value of these trees in the forests. When I started my official doctoral research in 2015, I, I was soon to find that I wasn't getting very far talking about the trees and the landscape on a daily basis. Instead, everyone wanted to talk to me about the planning of the heritage scheme or specifically the lack of its planning, the lack of things moving forward. So this is something that really did take over my thesis, even though, of course, I do still write about the trees and the forests and, and these kind of healing properties that they carry. As an anthropologist, my fieldwork was prioritized spending time with families. I was present in, in many of the families' everyday lives and in the ceremonies and family gatherings, including funerals, weddings, one-month-year-old birthday party, so manyue. And I followed people and took part in the work required in, in paddy fields, in their gardens, in their kitchens, in these ceremonies. And it became a vital task of mine, as it is for many anthropologists, to be present in the lives of the people I got to know. It was in no way an easy task. I was often refuted for my presence as a foreigner. And in such a compact village where word spreads fast and there was a lot of bad-mouthing and gossip, I very often struggled to differentiate what was real and what were rumors. 
this is something I write about a lot in my in my thesis as well, and that I continue to work with on notions of secrecy and the, the truth that people express through words or the kind of flawed interpretations of that. Okay, sounds really interesting and and learning experience. I guess ethnographic fieldwork can always be a learning experience, no matter how much you've done that. And you know that's the beauty of it, as you mentioned. You were first focusing on the landscape, but you noticed that the people wanted to talk about something completely different, and then sort of let that guide you into a different direction. That sounds like a really interesting and organic path that you took. But you know this point about the village being a heritage site or wanting to be a heritage site, or apparently the process is ongoing. How do you see this dynamic between heritage preservation and modernization in general in the countryside in China? Because oftentimes these can be tricky things to juggle when, for example, a lot of these heritage projects are motivated by commercial interests for tourism, for example. They want to create tourist sites out of these traditional places. And there can be competing interests that can make it tricky to sort of preserve the authentic old while still sort of creating the conditions for rising living standards, economic development, and so on. How do you think this has worked in the case of Mei Li? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we constantly re- return to that question, is it progress or preservation? And I don't think there is absolutely a clear answer to that. And it, to, to seek to answer that is based on, you know, the, the kind of epistemological grounding that, that one comes with. But in terms of Meili, you know, the, this big shift of moving urban capital to rural China, of course, that is kind of at the groundings of the heritage industry and rural revitalization schemes that are happening across China, which is leaving many villagers domiciled and, and forced to move into subsidized housing in order to create historical tourist sites or villages. In Meili, there was very little of that kind of shift when I was doing research. So there were suggestions to some households who wanted to, for example, tear down a wooden barn. And then the local government officials told them that, okay, we will give you subsidized housing in the county town if you can make sure that you don't touch this barn. But at the time of my research, there was no follow-up. So this was there was very little action done on this. And the families that were buying property in the county town were obviously those of more kind of economically stable backgrounds. But these schemes are, of course, very politically driven. And this is especially prominent across Guizhou, which has one of the lowest GDP per capita among China's 34 provincial regions, and is frequently referred to as the home of the poverty-stricken population. So it's oftentimes the politicians who gained from these schemes. And at least in Meili, this constant disappointment was voiced to me that the preservation scheme was not attending to the development of the village exterior. It was not attending to alleviating poverty, of which families were most concerned with. But in addition to this kind of political performance, you know, there's a lot written about the face projects of, of these heritage schemes or development schemes across China. But in addition to to this face that the party puts on through development, I also learned that people do respond. They seek compromise through these development schemes, through rural restoration. And even though Meili was not one of those villages that had lots of urban investors, although this was growing, you know, just at the end of the final weeks of my research, actually, and the discourse of heritage is present in the lives of Meili inhabitants and plans are constantly showcased around them, but it does not in any way define who they are. It's kind of in separation from their everyday life and it doesn't over-determine their life and their experiences. So 
instead considering it's a kind of separate realm from their everyday life from that that remains important to the people of, of Meili this leaves room for compromise which I've studied through this example of material compromises of heritage schemes so in this notion of material compromises I talk about how villagers rework plans through the materiality of a village so they take part in deciding what texture the walls of the village should be how smooth the rustic stone pathways need to be Whereas if this was up to the decision-making of the heritage scheme, this materiality would be based on this kind of ideology that in an ethnic minority village, the materiality needs to be unworked and needs to be raw. Okay, yeah. But moving again from the countryside back to the city and back to Beijing, actually, I want to talk a bit more about Beijing because you, as you mentioned in, in the beginning, you have this special perspective on, on Beijing because of your own family history, but also because you actually grew up in Beijing yourself and you worked there for quite a extensive time, apparently, before your academic career. And it just so happens that Beijing is also the Chinese city that I'm most familiar with since I I've lived there twice, first in 2012 for exchange studies and then in 2018 for an internship. And even in that short period of time, I was able to also see the modernization and transformation of the urban environment in Beijing. And this is, of course, something that people often talk about, the pace of change and how fast Beijing as the capital of China has also been changing. And that has also not been without its various types of problems and, you know, the destruction of heritage and these kind of things or the commodification of heritage. So just based on your own background, having grown up and lived in Beijing, how do you see this modernization and transformation of the urban environment in terms of Beijing? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. And it's also really interesting to kind of hear your experiences with that. And, you know, being based in Beijing, I somehow have always struggled to really I mean I think I've always I've thought about this a lot, obviously, and I somehow struggle to to really approach this question of change in general, but especially in the context of Beijing. Of course, you know, I think Beijing's transformation, its development, its urban transformation is very much rep representative of wider urban development across the country. But at the same time Beijing is very unique because of its capital and political center. And this is very much, you know, visible in how developments in, in the city has, has taken hold. There are still certain neighborhoods due to their proximity to political landmarks that have seen very little development in comparison to something like the CBD district. This is not to say that the real estate prices haven't grown. It's just that the, the change, the visibility of change isn't as prominent. It's, it's not a homogenous kind of entity that's taken over the entire city. I'm still working on, on this idea of change. And I, I guess that really does come through in, in my project as well, this current project, because of course there's change, there's visible change, there's, there's vast changes in people's lives and their living standards and what, you know, just the comfort of their lives. Family dynamics have changed tremendously. So much has. And at the same time, I think we do have to avoid getting too carried away and, and always return to kind of look at where narratives of the past do come to the surface even amidst change and development projects. So I guess this is something that I do think about on a wider level quite a lot, but I haven't yet learned how to formulate it in words. But maybe my point is more that I'm a bit suspicious of claiming that, you know, everything has changed. Of course, there's been a rupture, but I do think that especially Beijing, there's a lot of reminders of just how much the past does resurface and continue to exist in places that are maybe more hidden from the eyes 
of glossy magazines or development schemes. Yeah, really interesting perspective there. And just the idea that maybe it still hasn't, it could be an outsider's view when we emphasize just how much the city has changed, when in fact, there's also so much that hasn't changed. And there's also continuity instead of change. So yeah, really, really interesting take on this perspective. One of the reasons why I'm interested in the change in Beijing is actually because during my second stay there in 2018, I actually lived in one of these redeveloped traditional residential areas. And it was located right next to the Forbidden City on the eastern side of the Forbidden City in what used to be the imperial center of Beijing. This area was called Nanshizi. And it, it was interesting because it, it used to be this traditional Hutong area. And to the listeners who are not familiar with Beijing or don't know Hutongs, they're these old residential areas with narrow alleyways and traditional courtyard houses with communal living and communal facilities and so on. And often they are sort of painted as the true old urban and social fabric and social heart of Beijing. And these types of communities in Beijing have obviously been, you know, threatened by modernization and demolition and, and so on. So this area of Nanshizu was actually marketed as a sort of pilot project and blueprint for modernization while still preserving the heritage. And, and this could be used as a pilot and blueprint for, for other similar projects. Later, it was done somewhere in the early 2000s. I, I think started in 2002. I'm, I'm not quite sure about that. But anyways, what happened was that this so-called pilot project actually became quite a notorious example of how not to do modernization and urban redevelopment or, or preservation. Because what happened was, you know, similar things that you mentioned there with, with the countryside, just, you know, demolishing almost all of the buildings and building new imitations of old traditional houses in their place, relocation of most of the residents out of the community, and then most of them were actually not able to return to that community because after it was finished, it was marketed as a prime real estate. It was priced as prime real estate and sort of this upper scale residential area. So it actually, for many people, they were really not happy about how this turned out. And it became a sort of cautionary example of what can go wrong when you try to combine the modernization and development and preserving the old traditional areas. So I was wondering, how do you think about this in, in terms of Beijing? And do you think this is something that happens a lot? Or perhaps are there are there more successful examples where they've been successful in combining these two things? That's really fascinating example. It must have been even more fascinating to watch that unfold as you were living there. I think your question, successful examples of redevelopments, again, it depends on you know, it, it draws on these bigger questions of is success here progress or preservation? What's the gain here? If it's if it's perhaps from a heritage specialist perspective, the building itself is an embodiment of specific parts of the past and its value is inherent to the building. This is kind of the logic of the field itself. Buildings become unique materializations of time and the past is seen as something under threat if buildings are demolished. For somebody who's, you know, maybe renting a building and for example, in a hutong and doesn't get enough heat in the winter because the cold air comes through the cracks of the wall and there's no inbuilt toilets. And maybe they also have a broken foot, so they have to constantly, you know, step over the numerous steps that are inbuilt in, in hutong and it's, it's quite a hassle. Progress might, might appear more appealing to them. This is not to say that they would refute the heritage specialist 
point of view, but I do think that that it does, you know, the measure of success does really come down to the kind of epistemological approach that people have to spaces in general, to to buildings, the materiality of these spaces. But to answer your question, I mean, I don't think I would have ever have said this when I was writing my thesis, and I kind of scorned people who said that Meili was a successful example because it clearly wasn't a success. You know, people were dissatisfied. At the same time, the people are still in the village. So there hasn't been actual demolishment. So because so many of the kind of plans have failed and been pushed aside, it actually means that a lot of the preservationists are winning because it just means that the buildings are being left untouched. Maybe there's, you know, ideally, and they have done this for some of the older buildings, I shouldn't completely criticize their work, but they have, you know, fixed general electricity lining, plumbing, these kind of basic infrastructural requirements of the older homes to make them more comfortable. But the exterior is kind of left untouched just because so many of the plans have failed. And it's and this whole village project has become something of like, it's become kind of a taboo. You'd rather not have anything to do with it because if you do get involved as maybe an architectural company coming from Beijing and it fails, people will know, okay, again, there was another failure here. So there's a kind of, there's a risk involved there. So because of this, in a way, the heritage specialists are winning because the buildings are left untouched. And it also means that people still have their homes. So like I mentioned, there's a few families who have made the decision themselves to buy a home in the county town, but they oftentimes still have their family home in the village. My last visit in 2018, people still had access to their paddy fields and their gardens. So there's constant talk of opening new roads, of doing an eco-museum, and this land gets taken away from the villagers. And actually, the villagers very much approve of the land being taken away because they want that road. But because the plans keep failing, the road never gets built. At least it still wasn't built when I was there two years ago. But then the villagers go back to their paddy field. So they still have access to the security in their life, their paddy field, their garden, their home. So in a way, these reoccurring examples of demolishments and and the very familiar character of Chai, which was more present, you know, before Xi Jinping across urban China and rural China. This is not something that you see in a village like Meili. And of course, this also speaks to a complete re-navigation of policy where Xi Jinping has very much tailored rural restoration, rural revitalization schemes away from demolished schemes. It doesn't mean that populations aren't being relocated, but the older methods of demolishing by the government has been re-navigated to maybe private investors or outsiders themselves. So it means that maybe the widespread demolishing that was very prevalent, especially leading up to the Beijing Olympics and after that, it's not as present, at least where I was working in Guizhou. So in a way, is it a successful example of redevelopment? It's not a celebration. It's not a victory because people in Meili still don't have a way of making an income. There just aren't enough tourists and tourism development isn't working in terms of allowing families to be reunited in their homes and giving enough jobs for local villagers. So in that sense, it's not a success, but it does mean that the population hasn't been entirely relocated and entirely reshifted. Their, their lives haven't been changed entirely away from, from where they want to be. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And there's, you know, even even a sort of paradox there when you mentioned that, you know, the fact that these sort of, you know, schemes haven't been going forward actually has meant that from a preservationist perspective, the heritage has been preserved in a way. Quite an interesting dynamic. And, and obviously, there's a lot of different perspectives that you can take. And that then, of course, influences whether you think it's a success or not. You mentioned there 
the character of Chai, which to our listeners is basically it's the character that means demolition that is painted on the walls of of the buildings. And uh, as I understand, it's it's actually become somewhat of a symbol of this demolition craze in China, and also it's talked about in Beijing as well. That especially in the early two thousands and so on, you 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 would see. So many old buildings with this big character painted on the walls, and you know, you knew that okay, these buildings are going. But I guess not so much yet in the village of Meili. There's many sides to it, and I guess from what you say, you can't really say from an objective perspective is it a success or is it not. You know, different perspectives and really interesting questions, nonetheless. Besides this ethnographic research and anthropology, you've also actually taught BA and MA level courses on anthropology in Finland, with specifically focusing on China. I was wondering, how do you see the academic field in Finland when it comes to anthropology focused on China specifically? I personally have had sort of the feeling that maybe there isn't that much ethnographic research or anthropological focus on China in Finland. Maybe I've just missed it, or you know, haven't been noticing these. But I feel like other things, you know, political science or more traditional sinology, for example, dominate. What's your take on this? Am I mistaken in this view? No, I definitely don't think you're mistaken, and I think it's a really important question. I think that goes beyond anthropology. But I should point out that just in the past year, there have been quite a few new PhD students who've joined the anthropology discipline in Helsinki. One in particular working with Annika Janos, who of course has established her research between urban China and London and Helsinki, if I'm not mistaken. So she's looking more at kind of cognitive anthropology, but she's bringing in some Chinese anthropologists to work with her on this. And there's also been some researchers coming in to work on again more urban projects looking at technology and surveillance in China. So bringing in more students, bringing in researchers is a very promising sign, and it's only with more people that disciplines and universities themselves can start to navigate towards a certain geographical location like China. But nonetheless, I mean, I think the underlying problem here is, and of course this isn't unique to Helsinki, it's not unique to Finnish universities, but it's just you know the lack of financial support towards I think not just anthropologists but Chinese researchers in general. I mean, it's shocking how few teaching positions in China-related research there is across the entire country, especially if we compare with our northern European neighbors. So I think you're absolutely right. There is kind of deficit of anthropological-related research on China. I would say across research towards China in general, it's not just anthropology, and there definitely needs to be more financial supports from the university, from funding bodies, from uh, you know the entire system, the government as well. Considering China's role in the world, it's kind of an embarrassment just how little is being worked on. To kind of bring together Finnish people who are specialists working on the country, because it's such a vital place to understand in its multiplicity. So here, as you mentioned, there might be more priority, or there might be a wider field of political scientists or maybe international relations, which is just as important. But we need a multiple perspective on the country, so that requires engagement across disciplines in the university, across academia, to bring in all of our specialists and all of our specialist skills to understand. China and its multiplicity and its plurality. So even though I really enjoyed being able to, and I'm very thankful for being able to put together a course on anthropology of China, it wasn't something that I could continue to do. It was kind of a one-off. I got really positive comments and feedback from my students, and I think I was really able to engage with them. Many of them who had very little to do with China as a country in general, and it was it was really unfortunate. 
but I wasn't able to continue to do yearly or at least every couple of years because it means that you know good courses are put on but then if there's no financial support then it just kind of dissolves it doesn't get implicated in the in the syllabus in the teaching of let's say anthropology in Helsinki University yeah okay well let's certainly hope that in the future we get more focus on on ethnography and anthropology and at least based on today's discussion i'm even more interested in these things than before and i'm i'm pretty sure many of our listeners will be as well so fascinating the stories both from the countryside and the cities in china so many things happening there unfortunately our time is up for today's episode so thank you very much suvi rautio for these really interesting insights on ethnography and anthropology in China. And I look forward to hearing more about your ongoing research later in terms of your own family history and Beijing and intellectual life in Maoist China. So really interesting topics. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Arionos. This has been such a pleasure. You have such good questions and it's been really, really nice discussing all of this together with you. So thank you so much for inviting me and for having me on your show. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.